South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And now quickly, if you like, because there's only one line open, we're going to talk to Kim and Liz and Suzanne. And uh, you can grab that line number four quickly if you would like to. In the meantime, let's just get started with Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. So I learned something about the uh, rock phosphate. I didn't know that would improve your production. I put it in to keep the blossom and rot from happening. Well, now, generally, Epsom salts are what are going to give do the better job on blossom and rot. But uh, the rock phosphate well, will make heard, a... Yeah. Well, I've always heard rock phosphate from John Dromgul and, you know, all the organic gardeners in Austin. I've heard right. uh, rock phosphate. And, yeah, so that's interesting. Well, I'm so the the important the important thing is, of course, don't blend it with the soil. Like I say, just put a glob of right. it in the bottom of the hole, plant on top of it, and uh, it. You know, I think it helps with peppers and eggplant and other things as well. But I think the most profound benefits that I've seen have been on tomatoes. Well, I'll have to try it with my other vegetables now too. It's <laughs> it's a little late, but um, I'm calling because I planted. A cucumber this year, it's H19, because someone I know has tried every cucumber you can imagine is really like this one, and it's a uh-huh. carpic cucumber. Okay. It's been blooming for at least two weeks, maybe longer. I don't have a single cucumber. Well, I think if you'll examine the flowers, even though this is Parthenocarpic, of course, in, in English, that means no seeds. But um, I think you'll still find that your first big batches of flowers, and it can be for up to two or three weeks, actually, are going to be male flowers. And, of course, you can identify them because you'll see the little yellow pollinia down inside. And you can also tell the female flower because it'll have what looks like a little miniature cucumber about half an inch long. But uh, cucumber squash, melons, all of those things go through a, a phase of producing a bunch of male flowers before they start with the female flowers. And I think these cool nights also have something to do with it. Uh, at least in my garden, my cucumbers are not producing any female flowers yet. And uh, I think as the weather gets warmer, we're going to have plenty of them. But I don't think there's anything wrong with your technique or your plants. I think uh, in this case, just uh, apply a good dose of patience and you'll have lots of cucumbers for very soon. Well, so my question is with the Parthenocarpic, what I understand uh-huh. that that means that it doesn't need to be pollinated, which would make me think that there wouldn't be a male and a female flower if it doesn't need to be pollinated. Well, planted I, homemade pickles, and I already have some of those. Right. Well, I think uh, at least the definition that I am familiar with on Parthenocarpy is that uh, it, it, even though it doesn't, we don't go through the seed production phase. There is, so to speak, an activation phase. I mean, the uh, and I'm not sure that it doesn't get pollinated. It just it just doesn't make seed. And uh, but there is a an auction produced. Uh, when you know when when the we have pollinate, pollination but not fertilization so to speak and uh, I'll have to go check on that to be sure but um, uh, I I think that even though you even in Parthenocarpy you will get 
uh, an activation, so to speak, uh, even though you're not actually going to get the seed production. So I would go out and look, but I'd be willing to bet you you're going to see that you still have male flowers. Well, that's kind of what I thought, but I thought the whole reason he planted these was because he got tons of cucumbers because they didn't have to be pollinated. And then I looked it up and, like, researched this particular hybrid, and mm-hmm. um, and it says it doesn't need to be hot, uh, pollinated. And I'm like, well, where are the, where are the cucumbers? <laughs> and and right. then here I have the homemade pickles, which, you know, started blooming, is much smaller and started blooming later, and I had right. two or three little cucumbers started. Well, go the tattoo Go ahead. me is that right? I plan to do me squash. Uh huh. Yes, I still don't have any any squash, and it's also been blooming for a couple of weeks. Oh, go out and look at those flowers, and I'd be—I'd almost be willing you bet that they are not female flowers. But uh, I'd love for you to take a look. I, I've not tried growing this new variety, but uh, take a look and and see. I'd I'd love to hear back from you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I sure thank you for bringing me up to date on that, Kim. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> we'll be looking for the new variety. All right, uh, moving along here. Let's uh, let's say good morning to Liz. Hi, Liz. Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I have a question about some cedar chips. Wonder if they're okay to put in a vegetable garden as a mulch. They're fine to put as a mulch. Uh, they have. They get a. And an incorrect bad rap. People say, oh, cedar has something in it that keeps anything from growing. And that's simply not true. Cedar mulch is as good a mulch as you'll find anywhere. Uh, cedars suppress the growth of things underneath them by catching and holding the rain in their leaves and by blocking out the sunlight. But there, we call, we would call a compound like that alleliopathic. But, uh, there's nothing in cedar that's going to be damaging to anything else. And it actually makes it very very good mulch on the surface. Now, I don't recommend mixing it into the soil, um, just as I don't recommend mixing any raw wood wood into the soil. But uh, as a mulch on the surface, uh, you do just great with your cedar chips. And if you want to go one step further, add a little bit of compost to it, turn it into a living mulch, and you'll have as good or better mulch than you can buy in a bag anywhere. Okay, I have a friend who has some special chickens, and she keeps them on the uh, mulch cedar uh, cedar chips, and she changes uh-huh. it out so it has some chicken poop in it too. That's so. the best of all worlds. Chicken <laughs> poultry litter manure is uh, is one of the I you know it's one of the most I guess a good way to put it would be high potency fertilizers. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look, people. You know, people always think manure is manure, and uh, they don't always use those words for it, but that's what I have to say on the air. But um, when you look, you have to look at the efficiency of an animal's digestive systems. Cows are so efficient at digesting what they eat, there is very little 
you know, nutrient. Uh, it's a great source of organic material, but for me, cow manure is pretty much worthless as a fertilizer. Chicken poop, on the other hand, um, because of the amount of protein they produce, because their digestive systems are not quite so efficient, you've still got a lot of active nitrogen and other good fertilizer components uh, in that uh, litter, and, and that's what it's hard to beat. I mean, you have to be careful that it is at least partially composted because you can, they call it burning, it's not really a burn, but you put on chicken stuff that's too fresh and uh it won't be as good but no it's 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 about as good as you could possibly look for as a combination mulch and fertilizer okay well thank you very much and you take good care of that friend and uh be sure and take a few vegetables back their way and and uh, as a thank you for all the good litter you're getting for your garden okay All right, Liz. You're sure welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Suzanne. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I am off to a good start. How about you? Same here. Um, I planted something in my uh, fall garden for, you know, over over winter and asked Uh you about it, and you asked me to call you back. Yes. What I planted were uh, fava beans. Yes, uh huh. Varieties of winter. It's a cool season bean, I thought. If right, I get right. Fine. If I don't get these, it's still, I'm still adding to my soil. The fact is, they, they were okay plants. They got to be knee high. Uh huh. Um, the cut ants took them down. Oh, goodness. A couple of times. Yeah. They still managed to, to yield some. I, out of the 12 foot row, I got really loud. <laughs> Yield, um, I think I had a dozen beans. Wow. So I'm not, I'm not going to be planting them again. I just wanted to let you know. Um, they, they did, as I read, they flowered and start, well, except for that cut ant here. Uh huh. They flowered and started to produce beans, um, during cool, cool weather. Right, right. Yeah, they they are one of the most cold-hardy beans, and I believe they really are a bean rather than a pea. We have a lot of peas, of course, that tolerate the cold, but fava beans are, in my experience, one of the one of the more tolerant of uh, cold weather, even like freezes. But uh, I'm, you know, the reason I ask, I've I've never put them in my garden, and I have to say I didn't this year. Maybe I will this fall. But um, it it would be be interesting to know what the production would have been without the cut ant interference. But it sounds like uh, even even without it, it wouldn't have been a real high-producing crop. Well, that I had planned them once before, not in this garden, in a different location. And the problem I had there then was uh, lack of pollinators. Uh-huh. Because, it, you know, stuff is trying to get flower right? cool weather. Exactly. Uh, at any rate, that, that situation has changed because my next-door neighbor has put in five beehives. Ah, uh, and, and those girls are hungry year round. I mean, <laughs> 
<laughs> they're they're out searching for anything flowering. Well, and of course you can always help out that by planting some, you know, sweet peas and pansies and some of our other wintertime flowers. Uh, even snapdragons, if we have a warm winter, they'll bloom well. And boy, the bees love snapdragons. But uh, well, that's interesting, and I very much appreciate your your sharing your results. And uh, anybody out there that has any secrets for growing fava beans better, would love to hear from you. But uh, Suzanne, thank you for taking the time this morning. Well, I have one question for you yes. regarding uh, Farmer James. Yes. Do you know if, he, if he's selling tomatoes yet? He is probably up and listening, so if James calls in, James is busy, and I think the problem James has is that uh, it's both a blessing and a curse. I have so many callers that, as you know, you can spend some time on hold, and James doesn't always have time to hold. He's got to go off and do something else, but uh, hopefully he will get through today, and uh, maybe he'll be able to tell us how he's doing on uh, tomato production and uh, and if he's if he's selling his crop yet I'd, that'll be a good question to ask him thank you and also i know he's, he's producing plants for sale too so thank right <laughs> and tomato plants have been a little hard to come by we talked one of our growers into uh getting another crop of plants and we probably got oh i don't know a couple of hundred tomato plants earlier this week so uh we've got pretty good supply of plants but it's it's been tough keeping enough tomatoes on the shelf this spring so have to ask uh have to ask james how he's doing on his on his plant production and uh i'm making notes here on my uh on my scratch pad to uh, be sure and ask him hope we call in in a little while and i thank you for bringing it up all right thanks again bob all right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Minnie and Bill and David. Minnie called in first, so Minnie is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I finally had a little sunny spot in my yard, and I planted a tomato plant. <laughs> Good it, for you. It looks beautiful, and it was covered with blooms, but it only has three little tomatoes on there. The nights have been so cool, many, that uh, especially your big fruited tomatoes, in most areas, they're just not setting much fruit yet. They like those night temperatures up in the 65-degree range, and we've been in the 40s and 50s. Been really good for us. I mean, I love these cool mornings, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my tomato plants are taller than I am now, and that's about six feet, and I still have only a handful of tomatoes set. Now, my cherries are starting to set well, but my big fruited tomatoes, tomatoes are just kind of saying hey where's the warm weather so you hang in there there's nothing wrong with your tomato plants or your care they just need it to be a little bit warmer and you'll have a lot more fruit set okay bob that makes me happy another question is i so far i have watered it every day i don't water the leaves i water the bottom very good fertilized it with rose glow and uh-huh. when I first planted it, I spread Epsom salt out on the ground. What else do I need to do to make sure it gets enough nutrients and I do everything I can to make it a success? 
Well, I love Rose Glow. It's a great fertilizer. It's what they based one that actually the same company makes for us that we call our color essentials. But I think that, uh, that liquid fertilizers benefit your plants more quickly. So mm-hmm. I always use a dry fertilizer when I plant, but then I follow up with a liquid like, uh, Medina's, uh, has to grow plant is mm-hmm. what I okay. use or their okay. fish fertilizer, their new liquid fish blend, they call it. But, mm-hmm. uh, that's the only additional thing I would suggest is uh, maybe a little bit of liquid fertilizer and you should do very well with it. Uh, Do you have it in a cage? Do you have it staked up? How do you have it supported? I have it in a Steak, like this cone steak. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, just what the one other thing you can do, uh, many is just when you walk by it, just thump it real good. Just give that little cone just a little bit of a shake, because uh, tomatoes are not pollinated by insects. They're what we call wind pollinated. Uh-huh. And uh, my old friend Alton Grimm, who just saw so much in his lifetime, but he talked about visiting a an indoor tomato growing operation where the actually had like a pipe frame that was up toward the ceiling and then they had strings or wires coming down that they grew their tomatoes up and he was telling me that somebody would go in every day with a baseball bat and just whack that pipe frame two or three times because that's what it took to shake them and it would shake the flowers the pollen would be transferred around and that's how they got good tomato production now i think a baseball bat might be a little bit of overkill (laughs) in the case of many tomato but if you went by and just gave it a little bit of a shake every now and then and said, hey, wake up. I want more tomatoes. Uh, that might help with your pollination. But main thing we're working, waiting on is warmer nights to get more fruit set. Well, since it is still dark, I might take the broomstick and go out now and do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds like a good plan to me. Just don't trip over the hoves along the way. Okay, Bob. As always, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And we'll talk again. All right. uh, Okay. Up next is going to be Bill. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Bob. I love your last caller about the tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) They're just, you know, gardening should be fun. And the way we approach gardening, I mean, if if you consider the vegetable garden work, you're doing it wrong. Uh, Gardening should be a pleasurable activity. I wish I could get a few more hours in the day so that I would enjoy mine even more. But whether it's 15 minutes or whether it's two or three hours on a day off, uh, it's just the vegetable garden is just good for the mind and especially everything everybody's facing right now i think uh, i'm flattered and amazed by the number of people that have come in wanting help starting their first garden so uh uh, there's going to be some good come out of all this negativity oh yeah no doubt no doubt i've got a huge a huge problem i've got 75 to 100 uh uh, mature uh live oak trees in goliad county okay well well over 100 years old it takes three people to get around them Wow. And okay. I feel like oak wilt is just around the corner for me because around Yorktown there's there's a lot of trees piled up. What uh-huh. can I do to prevent losing these trees? 
Well, of course, you know, proper proper maintenance is going to be one of the most important things. Uh, obviously, I think the root flares probably will really well exposed on them if they are up to that size. Uh, but if there's any place where anybody's done any filling around them, of course, uh, get that soil away so that they are exposed. Um, recognizing that we can't do anything about storm damage, but uh, if you do any pruning, major or minor, be absolutely certain that you seal the wounds doesn't have to be pruning paint anything seals up the wound for eight or ten days and uh, we can control that you know where we're making pruning cuts uh, like Howard always points out you know get a hailstorm or something like that or you get a strong windstorm you may have a few branches break that that you can't get to to seal but um it it at least will protect everything you can and finally especially on the front of, uh, you know, when we have a lot of oak trees growing together, we call it a mott. And along the front of the mott, closest to where you think the danger may come from uh, spreading oak wilt, treat them with whole ground cornmeal. Um, it takes a lot less cornmeal, and we're finding it to be just as effective if we take and soak one to two cups of cornmeal in a five-gallon bucket of water, soak that overnight, and then dump that liquid around the tree. Now, you may be big enough that you have a tank sprayer or something like that, and you can do a lot more than uh, five gallons at a time. But uh, the trichoderma, which grows on the cornmeal, it starts something we call systemic acquired resistance, or sometimes it's called systemic induced resistance, which will make these trees virtually 100% resistant to oak wilt. But... uh, and you know, if you if you happen to have 20 acres of corn and more corn than you know what to do with, you can just uh, put out the dry cornmeal, which is what we used to do. You know, putting out I, some friends, a uh, friend of mine up in the hill country that I buy hay from, we had to treat some 48-inch caliper trees of his that were badly suffering from oak wilt, and actually turn those trees around, and they're beautiful trees again today after having been like 50% defoliated with oak wilt. But uh, we're finding that you get the same benefit from soaking a cup or two of cornmeal to five gallons of water and then just pouring that fairly close to the trunk of the tree, usually within 10 feet of the trunk. And um, again, the number of oak trees you have, it would be a big project, but uh, as you can, work through the area. And like I say, the the things that we find that that stimulate this systemic uh, induced resistance are biochar, they are whole ground corn, meal they are a salicylic acid of those three the cheapest and easiest is a cornmeal so uh, keep an eye out for you know at the end of hunting season when everybody's trying to get rid of their deer corn or if you've got a good feed mill down there where you can go buy cornmeal at a reasonable price and as long as you're pouring it doesn't make any difference put your cornmeal directly in the bucket of water and then just pour it all out if you're ever going to run it through a sprayer put the cornmeal down uh, get your wife or girlfriend to give you an old pair of pantyhose or something like that or you can go to the paint store and get what they call a paint strainers bag put your cornmeal down in that and that way after you've soaked it for 12 to 24 hours you just pull the bag out and throw out throw it away you're not having to strain the liquid so that it won't clog up your uh, sprayer does that make sense yeah so the liquid does the trick it's not the actual grant yeah no it's it's the trichoderma fungus which will be present within the liquid Okay, and you pour it on the ground, not the foliage. 
That's correct. That's correct. Because uh, the way that the that this fungus works, ceratocystis, I believe is a is a correct name for it, is it plugs up the xylem. It plugs up the tissues that carry the water from the roots up to the top of the tree and so you get a much faster uh, response when you are applying it to the roots of the tree uh, you know you're not going to hurt anything putting it on the foliage but it's certainly not going to give you the good results you're looking for and I can just pour it in one spot. You don't have to pour it around the around the trunk. Oh, you know the size trees you're talking about. I'm going to do four or five five gallon buckets, and I'm just going to space those buckets around the tree, fill them with water, and put the cornmeal in. So, you know, a small tree. I don't know. I guess it wouldn't hurt to you know kind of slosh it around a little bit. But uh, a big tree, it's going to take more than one bucket. So, I, yeah, I would space those uh, around the tree rather than just pouring it all the same place. Okay, and you want it to you want it to soak into the into the earth into the ground. The the oak tree has feeding roots, and uh, we're also finding that it forms a pretty good mycorrhizal fungal association, which also picks up a lot of things and carries it toward the center of the tree. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's not a precise operation, shall we say? Okay, so two cups per five gallon pail. One to two cups. I say one cup. Uh, my good friend and arborist David Vaughn says two, so I try to split the difference. And quite often, I if I don't have a cup handy, I'm just grabbing a you know a giant double handful, and uh, it's sure. it's not. Once again, we're not in the research lab. We're we're in the field lab, so to speak. And precision is not as important out there. Okay, and uh, and let it soak overnight. Yes, sir. Let it soak minimum eight hours. Uh, if it soaks more than about 48 hours, it starts losing some of its uh, um, goodness, so to speak. So actually sometime between eight and 36 hours is going to be the ideal time to put it out. Okay, super. Well, i got my work cut out for me. Well, yes, sir, and you've got trees worth protecting. I, you let me know how it all works out for you, and do remember, you know, just use uh, just use common sense about protecting wounds and like i say just follow basically what howard garrett calls a sick tree treatment and if you want to follow up with little dry molasses little uh you know green sand anything like that that's going to improve the overall health of the tree but what we're most interested in is getting this uh, systemic immune response going and uh that's what that's what the cornmeal is going to be all about yeah the trees are in super good shape right now but boy i don't want to go out there and find you know a 200 year old tree yeah uh, turn into firewood i'm with you 100 percent do remember that um the way the disease spreads uh, you have two ways that oak wilt can be spread around one is through root grafting and this way it moves very slowly maybe 100 feet a year and it just moves from tree to tree going from the roots of one tree into the roots of another tree but the other way that it gets spread around are these little insects called the nitty the beetles that feed on trees that have died of oak wilt but only red oaks live oaks do not form a spore mite even if they die of oak wilt 
But a red oak, when it dies of oak wilt underneath the bark, it forms probably billions, certainly millions of spores. It forms kind of a sticky substance along with it that uh, is attractive to the little nitty-doolid and ambrosia beetles. They go in to feed on that. They pick up the spores of the oak wilt fungus on their exoskeletons, on their, their outer shell, and then they go off to feed on a wound on a tree, and that's how it can be you know, moved hundreds of miles at a time. So if you're buying firewood, um, the nice thing about uh, even a, a red oak that's died of oak wilt, once that wood is thoroughly dried, once it starts to do what we call check, where you see splits in the cut ends of the wood, at that point it's dried out to the point that the fungal spores are no longer infective. But uh, don't let anybody be bringing in any freshly cut red oak wood um, and be a little careful about uh, uh, you know, accepting, I mean, dead, dried up uh, mulch is fine, but if you're in oak wilt country, I'm going to be sure that I'm not seeing any live leaves or any, you know, real obvious leaves in with any mulch that I'm getting because um, not likely, but just, you just got too much of a, too much value there to really risk. So uh, always remember how oak wilt spread and do your part to try to stop it. Okay, super. I really appreciate you. Have a good day. Well. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. It's going to be David and Bill and Dan and Reuben, and David is up first. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I have a question about a possum haul. Holly, I have I live on the north side of Canyon Lake up here. I guess the soil yes, is pretty alkaline and all. Having a little trouble getting it to you know get real healthy looking and everything. Do you have any suggestions on that? Well, and you know, a woody shrub is just like a tree. You need to be sure that it's not buried too deeply. You want to be sure that you can actually see where the roots start flaring out down at the base. Uh possum haw you know, they'll grow in almost any soil, but if your soil's too alkaline, um, they would benefit from a little bit of green sand around them. They'd benefit from a little bit of uh, compost around them. I think green sand and or lava sand, and those are things you don't have to apply very often. That, just along with uh, a good organic fertilizer, don't ever use synthetic nitrogen fertilizers because you don't want you to get your plants too used to... Uh, something like that because it's going to cause too much of a water uptake but i'd i'd be fertilizing and i'd put a, be putting a little bit of supplemental green sand around it and that should um as it gets its roots spread out possum hall is a great great plant for your area but your soil is also not the best in the world so uh okay, um, sure. yeah i'd i'd go with some fertilizer some green sand be sure that when you water you water thoroughly but let it get dry an inch deep between waterings because the problem is always sometimes we dig a hole in that higher caliche soil and it doesn't drain well and boy the last thing a possum haw needs is to stand in water so we want to be sure we're letting it dry to the proper point between waterings but uh, you ought to be able to turn it around it should do fine for you if you plant any more and if your soil's just really not very good try creating a little bed a little raised bed or even just a bermed up area where you can bring in some good soil uh to at least get it started in let then let it spread its roots out uh, on its own but but for now fertilizer green sand i think that'll turn it around okay and i had one other question about a plant uh 
we always just call it a friendship plant. It it gets a real weird little flower in the spring when the weather gets warm. It, it I don't know. It's kind of like a stalk that comes out and it gets a little these little like blue dangly flowers that have a little yellow thing in the middle and it spreads like crazy. And okay. I uh, had some in a pot and it just got so thick that. I divvied it up, you know, and put some of those in the ground, too. <laughs> yes, sir. Is there anything special I need to do for it? Uh, same thing. Just water thoroughly and deeply when you water. A uh, little bit of organic fertilizer. If you're just getting something started, I like a liquid product. Uh, if uh, once things are in and growing, just sprinkle around some of the dry granular fertilizer like you'd put on your uh, on your lawn or your vegetable garden. Yeah, I've been using that. It has to grow. Liquid. Yeah, that'll work fine for you. Be sure you're using has to grow plant rather than the has to grow lawn. The has to grow lawn's got a little bit too much nitrogen in it uh, in a slightly different form. So uh, when you buy it, uh, just remember there are two forms of has to grow, and has to grow plant is the one you're looking for. Okay, well these, you know, like I say, I, they, it was in a pot, and I, geez, I've given so much away to everybody. Somebody <laughs> finally put it in the ground, and. Uh, they just they got flowers and everything, but they're looking a little peaked, you know. Well, this uh, the high winds we've had, especially the mornings when it's been chilly, combined with a little bit of wind. Uh, things are just, you know, this is this is not our normal warmer spring weather that usually just sets in, gets hot, and stays hot. This has been a really nice spring from our perspective because we've still continued to have some really chilly mornings, but it sure has slowed down uh, how, how some things are coming out. So I think things will change pretty drastically in the not-too-distant future. Well, they're hanging in there. Actually, they're just looking a little peaked. But yeah, okay, I appreciate the info. That's always a pleasure. Do you get out and have a good okay, weekend? Have a good day. Thank you, David. Bye. All right. Next up is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Morning, sir. I have a, probably a relatively simple question about a lawn. Okay. Um, we've been we've seeded with Bermuda seed, and um, with uh, we put that down about middle of February, and uh, we've been watering since, and there's been nothing. Well, sir, I don't. I don't recommend planting Bermuda seed till Mother's Day. Bermuda is a hot, hot, hot weather seed, and when you put it out when the ground is still cold, um, it's going to sit there and sit there and sit there. It's a fairly tough seed, but you know the birds will eat some of it, the bugs will eat some of it. Fortunately, it's a pretty cheap seed, so I would start. You know, we're into having weather in the 80s and even the low 90s uh, to get Bermuda seed to germinate. You really need to keep it moist, and this means watering even once or twice a day so at that point or at some point i would start you know really trying to keep you don't have to water too deeply but keep the surface of the ground really quite moist if you go a week or 10 days and you still haven't seen any germination any growth of the bermuda go out and get some more seed and put it down because you just unfortunately uh call me first next time but you put it out about three months too early oh man so, okay, we are on a well, and the pump flow um, doesn't support more than two sprinklers, and unfortunately, we've got about an acre of seed we put down, so okay. it, it would be difficult to water it twice a day. 
Okay, what you're going to have to do is divide that acre up into, uh, you know, maybe eight little sub portions because, again, okay. that's one thing I would have advised you is uh, don't ever try to take on an acre project all at one time. Take a little, you know, maybe 50 by 50 foot square, get that up and growing, and then move adjacent, get another 50 by 50 foot square, and just all of a sudden you look back and the whole place is done. But uh, you can't you can't wash the whole elephant at once. You got to do one little piece at a time, so to speak. And um, I would do that. And like I say, if you haven't seen any germination after uh, ten days of warm weather, then go get some more seed. Bermuda seed's cheap, and it, you don't put out much of it. We figure about a pound per thousand square feet on Bermuda seed. So uh, uh, may have to invest a little bit more in seed. But to always plant Bermuda seed after it gets hot, and you'll be much more successful. So then we can continue to plant it and water it, get it started throughout the summer as long as we Absolutely. Absolutely. It would much prefer July to February. It just, uh, you know, the later, later it gets into the summer, the harder it, is, harder it is to keep it, you know, adequately moist. But, uh, yeah, we plant Bermuda seed uh, all, all summer long. Okay. Well, then we've got a lot of practice in watering (laughs) (laughs) you call me first next time so we don't have to go through all that (laughs) all right well thank you very much hey it's my pleasure bill thank you sir (laughs) goodbye south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071 all right, it's going to be uh, Dan and Reuben and Mary and Elaine, and we start out with Dan. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Mr. Bob. How are you? Uh, day is off to a beautiful start. How about you? Well, it's nice and cool here in Pipe Creek, so we're off to a good start as well. Yeah, that's going to change, but uh, it's just been, other than lack of rain, we've been, we're in a beautiful stretch of weather. We are, so... I'm watering the garden as I speak to you, and so one of my questions for you is, we got a late start putting the garden in, kind of with everything that's going on. Uh-huh. So I've got my transplants in the ground now for about two weeks, and, you know, with, between the, the heat and the wind, I find myself watering twice a day. Uh-huh. I'm not watering well, a ton, but I'm, you know, getting it, you know, letting it get, you know, a little bit of a drench. Not, yep. I, I would... I would really, really drench it, but my rule, because a lot of things will droop from wind and heat even when they're not dry, my rule is if it's droopy in the evening, don't worry about it. If it's still droopy the next morning, water it, because it's real easy to keep things too wet, and the outcome will not be good uh, if the soil stays too soggy wet. So uh, water thoroughly when you water, but again, don't worry if it's a little droopy in the wind and the heat, but uh, if it's still droopy the next morning, then it needs another drink and that goes for tomatoes and peppers and beans and literally everything in the garden okay that's good to know um another question is we have a pretty big section for fresh herbs and i've got some mint and it looks like it's called english mint and uh-huh. the bottom leaves are turning yellow are you fertilizing with some regularity and how often are you watering that same thing for about okay. twice a day yeah it, it's hard to yeah, it's hard to keep mint 
too wet, but I will tell you uh, English mint is not as tolerant of heat as our good old Texas uh, peppermint or spearmint, either one. I think your yellowing may just be due to the heat. Shouldn't affect the flavor, but that's one spot if you can put a little shade over it uh, in any way, it will stay a darker green and, you know, feed it regularly. But English mint is just not quite as tolerant of Texas heat as some of the other mint varieties. Okay, great. Good to know. The last question I had was, we're going to try to put in a greenhouse for the fall. Uh-huh. Is there any place you know that sells kits or even yeah. finished greenhouses? Come, come into San Antonio and go to Greenhouses Etc. Uh, it's out on off of Topper Wine on Topper Parkway. The guy's name is Muth, Tommy Muth, M-U-T-H, and uh, he builds a top-quality greenhouse at a very reasonable price. You give me a call if you need any more help locating him. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. Yeah, but don't dial right this second because all those lines are taken. We're going to talk to Reuben and Mary and Elaine and Fran. And uh, I just, once again, I sure hope you're planning to spend some time outside this weekend. And, of course, next weekend now is going to be Mother's Day. So uh, don't forget about that, you know, whether it's the mom of your children, whether it's your mom, if it's a mom-to-be. Actually, all the ladies out there should uh, be treated and offered special, special things on Mother's Day. And uh, this is going to be the good weekend to get out and look around and visit a good nursery. I mean, there are some incredible plants out there. And uh, anyway, get out, do it safely, you know, social distancing and all of that. And uh, um, if you feel more comfortable with a mask, it's only required where you can't socially distance. But uh, lots of it do it just because it makes, uh, makes people around you feel a little bit better. But if you can't think of any other good reason to get out and go to a nursery, hey, remember, Mom's Day is next Sunday, a week from tomorrow tomorrow and you might want to get some shopping done okay we're going to talk uh let's see first up is going to be reuben then mary and elaine and fran good morning reuben hey good morning bob how you doing um fantastic how about you today doing good doing good so i got a couple of questions i'll try to make it really short because i know you got a lot of callers this morning but the biggest question i have is i've got a couple of texas red oak trees that have been in the ground probably about a year when we bought our house uh-huh. And unfortunately, what I don't like is the trees are kind of planted real close together. I'm on, if I had to guess, maybe within about 10 feet apart from each other. In okay. your opinion, um, I'd, I'd like to maybe move them because I think they're too close because eventually in, in time they're going to grow and be these huge, massive trees. So I wanted to ask you reasonably, how far apart should they be? And if I were to move them, when would be the, the, the time of the year to do that? Well, first of all, the only only problem with having them close together is that you're not going to see individual beautifully shaped trees, but most of our yards aren't big enough to achieve that anyway. The other problem is that it will be a little bit denser shade, but Mother Nature plants red oaks a lot closer together than that. When I wander around my ranch, I mean, some of them are three feet apart and some of them are 30 feet apart, so if you were going 
going to really spread them out where they would never really come in contact with each other. You'd have to plant them 50 feet apart. And that, you know, that I, I just, it, it's strictly up to you. It's not a problem for the trees. If you would rather have them spread out so you see a little bit better spacing in between, you can certainly do it. Now, were these trees planted from containers? Were they bald and burlapped? Uh, how were they initially planted? Yes, sir. I mean, when when we purchased the house, they were put in by uh, subcontractors. Um, my assumption would be, you know, uh, plastic uh, pots and stuff like that. Okay. Um, I, I, I I like them where they're at. They look like to me they might be too close together. But the last thing I want to do, and the goal is not for them to <laughs> suffer from the move. Well, so if it means yeah. them in the ground, I'd rather keep them in the ground. I I would I would give yourself uh, eight months to think about it because the time to move them, if you decide to do that, will be in the winter months when the leaves are off the tree. Uh, ideally, sometime between about October and about February. So uh, uh, I, in no circumstance am I going to tell you to move them at this time of year. Uh, so think about it. I don't think you need to move them but you know your landscape should please you it doesn't matter whether it pleases me or you know pleases the neighbors of course uh you know your wife may have <laughs> the ultimate say as ladies frequently do but i don't think they're too close together I'd, I'd think about just leaving them alone i would be more concerned that they put the right kind of red oak in because there are several different forms of red oak and for most of the san antonio area the schumard is not the right red oak despite the fact that the box stores sell a lot of them our hill country red oak's much better but at this point concentrate on making sure that that root flare is exposed keep them mulch fertilize them with an organic fertilizer and uh, the other thing that I always like to tell people about young trees is don't cut all the lower limbs off everywhere you have a limb everywhere you have leaves on the tree it is pumping sugar and nutrients into the trunk and making the trunk grow and fill out more quickly now what I do with any new trees that I put into my landscape uh, the first two or three or four years, I will go through every winter and I will cut those little side limbs coming out back to about six inches long because I don't want to make them let them make major limbs if I'm going to be whacking my head on them when I mow the yard. But by the same token, I want foliage all the way up and down the trunk. We call it trashy trunk. And then when that trunk gets up to be six or seven inches in diameter, at that point, you can cut those little side limbs all the way back. But the worst thing you can do is just keep that trunk skinned down to where there's just this tall, skinny trunk because it will take that tree twice as long to form a nice, strong tree as if you leave some foliage up and down the trunk for at least the first, oh, two to four years of the tree's life. Does that make sense? Yes, sir, it does. That's some great advice. I'll be honest with you, I would do that. Like what you call the trash truck, I would kind of trim them up, but like you said, I'd rather I, I just keep it on there so that way you can... Uh... Like yeah, just just don't let them make major limbs because that's the other misconception I hear people that think, oh, that limb's just two feet above the ground now. It's going to rise up as the tree grows. Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. If that limb is two feet off the ground now, it's going to be two feet off the ground 20 years from now, and you're going to be crashing into it and saying improper things when you do so. So uh, <laughs> the ones that, if they be in the way someday, then uh, then trim them back, but don't cut them all the way off. Okay, sounds good, definitely. Second question is, like you mentioned, with all this extra time that we have at the house now, I want to get my kids into some gardening. So I want to start a basic raised bed. So what materials and how, what depth would you recommend? 
for a starter raised bed. Is are you sitting on good soil or are you sitting on a slab of rock? Uh, I believe it's a little bit of both. Okay. Well, I would go um, probably the easiest thing to use are cinder blocks. And I would go either one or two blocks high, somewhere between 6 and 12 inches. If you've got decent soil underneath, going one block high is plenty. If your soil is questionable, I probably would go two blocks high. And okay. uh, go somewhere like Stone and Soil Depot, or if you're going to be to where you want to buy it by the truckload, <coughs> excuse me, the pickup load or something like that. Uh, smaller area, of course, you can just buy a good bagged soil at a nursery, but uh, if it's going to be very big, you'll be a lot cheaper to either get it delivered or go out and pick, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, pick up a couple of yards of soil. And uh, just remember, you want your garden to be in full sun. <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a piece of granola in my throat, I think. <coughs> but um, you okay there? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's been two hours since breakfast, but that one just seems hanging there. Anyway, uh, great time to be planting okra. Still plenty of time to be planting squash and cucumbers. If you plant tomatoes, and everybody should have some tomatoes, but plant the cherry-type tomatoes because those the smaller fruited varieties produce much better through the summer months. And uh, you can get a there's a yellow one called Sun Gold. That tomato, the first thing I do in the summer is walk in the vegetable garden, eat about 20 of them. And then go work on whatever I need to. But some goals, Sweet 100, Juliet, uh, get a good cherry tomato because it's going to give you maximum production and the kids are going to have so much fun picking their own tomatoes. Sounds like a good plan. And the last question I have for you, Bob, is this. Um, I know HEB Garden Center, and I hate to throw HEB's name out there, but they have their version of an organic fertilizer there, and it's mentioned something about developed by Medina. Any feedback on that or anything, any knowledge on it as far as how that compares? I, I did not know that HEB was doing their own, but if it's made by Medina, it's going to be good. Okay. Uh, Stuart, Stuart Frank, he's a good guy. He His products, I like to say natural and organic. Some of them are certified organic, but costs a lot of money to get an organic certification on a product. And um, Stuart's, you know, his family's had over 50 years' experience working with the soil, and they understand the importance of supporting the microbes, which are the most important thing in the soil. So I pretty much have confidence if Medina makes it, it's going to be a pretty good product. I, I still right, believe wonderful. in supporting your local nursery, but sometimes uh, that that good old heeb, as we call it, is a little bit more convenient. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, Bob, thank you very much for all the great advice. I definitely appreciate it. So you have a wonderful day. You do the same, Reuben. And thanks for getting those kids involved in gardening. It'll do them a lifetime of good. Yes, <laughs> thank yes, you so yes, much. Sir. Thank you very much. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Uh, Mary is up next, and then it will be Elaine and Fran. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. Uh, Good morning. I am. I have raised bed gardens. Uh, uh-huh. I have four here at home, and our group has about seven over at church. Okay. Um, I have a fire ant. What? Okay. What can I do about fire ants in the raised beds? Well. One way that you can both run them off and you can keep them from getting started is periodically get some dry molasses. Howard Garrett's the one that turned us on to this, that if periodically you'll just go, and I mean, you don't have to be real exact about it, just just sling it out by the handful. Fire ants hate the microbial activity that dry molasses will generate 
my business partner has, oh gosh, how big is the garden on her front of home? It's flower garden, but it's probably 25 by 35 feet. And she just almost had uncontrollable fire ants. One application of dry molasses, and she virtually never sees a fire ant again. Now, if you know, if you have a bad problem starting out, you can put out some of the organic bait, which is called Come and Get It. Um, you can treat individual areas with orange oil and water, but uh, just as a general, and, and it'll benefit your plants, probably about twice a year, just get a bag of dry molasses and just, you know, sprinkle it lightly throughout the garden areas. The fire ants will leave and your plants will grow better. And I just spread it on top. I don't need to work it in at all? No, no, no. No, just just sling it out on top. I mean, for me, putting out a, a 40-pound bag of dry molasses is about 10 minutes worth of work. Okay. Um, the other thing is we've been getting a rancher near here has been uh, donating molasses buckets to us. Yeah, excellent. And yeah. Um, one of them that came this last time had, a, I think, a lot of dry molasses still in the bottom of it. All the and better. We, we've we got, um, you know, it, it rained, and so it, it um, melted into the, <laughs> the water, and I poured that into a, a bucket. What what should we do as far as do we just put it at whatever strength it is, pour it on you, our stuff? No, I'd, I'd dilute it around, and I would do it quickly because it's going to get stinky in a hurry. And um, okay. no, I'd, I'd, uh, you know, I, I would dilute it down some. It's probably not going to cause any problem as is, but it'll do more good if you spread it out more widely. So dilute it down however you think appropriately. But I would put that toward the high on the list of activities because it's going to become okay. unpleasant in fairly short order, and then get some holes drilled in that molasses um, tub and get something else planted. Okay. Um, the last thing is. Um Tomatoes, I know that they don't like to be wet all the time. Um, How do we avoid that with, you know, somebody different watering every day? Is there some kind of a... Um, well, as long as those people can stick their index finger in the ground and tell when it's dry about a half an inch deep, um, then it's just as simple as don't water if it doesn't need to be watered. And keep in mind that with dry winds and sunshine, plants sometimes droop when they're not dry. And the worst possible thing you can do is keep that soil too wet. It's not the water that hurts, but the water drives the oxygen out of the soil. And if a plant's roots don't have oxygen, the roots die and the plant dies. So um, just, you know, water very thoroughly. There's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. So when they get watered, they need to be watered thoroughly, but use that. That's the best moisture meter you've got is your index finger. When that upper half an inch is dry, it's time to water again. Okay. Um, One last quick question. We've planted pole beans. Uh Uh-huh. and we put uh, things for them to climb on, but they're they're not climbing. When do they start climbing? They have to be oh at least six eight weeks old before they start climbing. Okay. But in the future, I'll tell you, I went for about three years, and my pole beans just produced so poorly for me. I've pretty much switched over to bush beans, and they 
they produce more beans than me and three friends can eat. So uh, it's not too okay. late to go ahead and get some uh, bush beans planted. In fact, that might be something you put in that brand-new molasses tub. Uh, get one of the summer varieties. My favorite spring variety is Tavera, but I don't plant it quite this late. I'd be planting Contender or Top Crop or Bush Blue Lake, one of those. But uh, I think even though they don't produce as long, your bush beans are going to be far more successful than pole beans most summers. Okay, is a five-gallon bucket big enough for for a bush bean? It's hard to keep a five-gallon bucket watered. I mean, you could put about four or five plants in there, and that would be enough room for them to grow. But a five-gallon bucket is tough to keep it watered in the hot summer months. I'd, right. I'd be going more to a 15-gallon minimum. Better still, one of those molasses tubs. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Elaine and Fran and Jan and Robert, and Elaine is up next. Good morning, Elaine. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you this morning? I am good, too. Good. I was listening to your program, and I heard Howard Garrett mention a product called Weed Crush, so I ordered some, Uh and I've been trying to experiment with it, but not having good results. So I contacted the company, and the person I spoke with suggested I test my water because I have my own well water. Uh And so he sent me some pH test strips and another bottle of Weed Crush. So I tested my water, and it was at a 7 pH. Oh, that's neutral. That's ideal. uh, Yeah. Is it ideal? But I got absolutely no results with it at all. So I switched over to I used distilled water. Uh-huh. And I got some better results, and then I was thinking, should I add like 20% vinegar to that to help it, or what are your thoughts about using a product? I'd like for it to work for me, but like, oh, of course. it absolutely would kill no, it did not kill any of the carpet grass that I had around my garden. I'm trying to get rid of that. Okay, so what, well, how, what should I do to make it work better? Uh, you can try a little bit of, uh, especially apple cider vinegar is not going to hurt anything, but Weed Crush or just about any of these other natural products, they are great against annual weeds like dandelions, like henbit, like clover, uh, like the winter grasses that come up. But when we start talking about a turf grass like St. Augustine or Bermuda, there is nothing. I mean, even the nasty stuff like Roundup's not going to kill it without three or four applications. So the, I'm glad you have St. Augustine rather than Bermuda because St. Augustine does not make underground runners uh, like Bermuda does. All of the St. Augustine runners are up on top of the ground. And quite frankly, I think St. Augustine is really easy to eliminate uh, with nothing more than a grubbing hoe. I mean, in five minutes, I could clear a you know a ten by ten area totally of St. Augustine because you just you just cut it off right at ground level and it does not come back. So um, I you know St. Augustine out there. Well, <laughs> yeah, it. It, it weed eater doesn't go low enough because you do want to get rid of the runners, but you don't have to dig. You only have to cut right at ground level. And uh, uh-huh. do you know what a grubbing hoe looks like? Yes. Okay. It, it's funny because I had a caller last week that simply did not have any idea what I was talking about, and I sent her to a really good hardware store lumberyard up in Comfort called Bonert's, and I happened to be in there talking to the owner this week about something else, and he said, oh, the lady came up that needed to know about a grubbing hoe. <laughs> and so, but it, it, it's, you know, 
If I were trying to get out Bermuda, that would be work. If I were trying to get rid of St. Augustine, that would be just a little light exercise. You can just skip going to the gym for one day. But uh, I don't think you're going to be successful with anything, even the nasty products, you know, hoping to kill them quickly with uh, with a liquid because it's just not going to happen. St. Augustine's just too tough, but it is easy to eliminate. In fact, I've had places around some beds where I had such a problem of Bermuda growing into the bed that I planted St. Augustine because it would choke out the Bermuda and then I could control the St. Augustine a whole lot more easily than the Bermuda. So I unfortunately I think you're just expecting too much from a product because nothing you buy, even orange oil and vinegar, it's gonna burn the leaves, but it's gonna come right back until you spray it about you know six or eight times. So it's uh I don't think it's the product. I think it's the grass. It's just too tough. Okay, because I, that's what I have is Bermuda and the St. Augustine. Well, let's. Thought, oh, I'm going to run out there and just spray this stuff and get rid of it. I <laughs> wish it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, my solution to it was just get my weed eater out and just, you know, just get it into the ground. And I did that yesterday just trying to knock yep. it back as best I could. So, Well, uh, and so here's the other thing. Is this, is this at the outside edge of your garden? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I hate weed block and I hate black plastic, but um, on the outside edge of my garden, I will put the other down and I'll leave it down for maybe a year and then pull it up because it will smother. If I'm expanding my bigger vegetable garden and I've got native grasses and other things that are really tough to get rid of, I'll put that that weed block down knowing that I'm going to pull it up a year later and the soil's going to be really nasty underneath, but I can bring that soil back to life with dry molasses, with garret juice, with other things that I use. And around the outer edge of my garden, I have a permanent three-foot-wide strip of black plastic just because the Bermuda won't go under it and into the garden. So on the outer edge of the garden, you might just cover it up and let it get solarized underneath either the weed block or the black plastic for a few weeks and uh, that's going to be better than any liquid and it's going to be it's going to be effortless as opposed to having to get out there and and really do a little severe work st augustine's easy bermuda is a pain uh, i guess you might say a pain in the grass yes (laughs) very much so (laughs) oh my goodness well is there any other way to use a weed crush then i mean it really smells good it's that clove oil (laughs) yeah Uh, well it's just it's what you're using it on i think you'll find it to be very effective you know against uh dandelions against uh the the uh, crabgrass against a hen bit against dollar weed uh it just uh it it really knocks out your more tender weeds you're just uh you know, you're trying to use a 22 to stop a tank when you're when you're trying to use okay. it on tough long grass. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate the information. Well, <laughs> you know, excellent question, great. Elaine. <laughs> you uh-huh. do the same, and thank you. All right. Goodbye. Uh-huh. Bye. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Going to be Fran and Janet and Robert and Greg and Fran's up first. Good morning, Fran. Good morning. I have a similar problem to the last caller. I have okay. some land where I would like some wildflowers next year or in future years. The okay. problem is I have spear grass and beggar's lice and every kind of tall grass in the world. <laughs> and wildfires come up, but you can't see them. You know? Okay. Uh, what do I do? Move? <laughs> <laughs> you anticipate well. Um, you know, it's um, 
usually our biggest problem is with things that sprout uh, very early in the season, winter grasses and things like that. Warm season grasses are usually not that much of a problem because the wildflowers are pretty much up and done with everything except seed production before the KR blue stem, before the Bermuda, before the stuff like that really gets going. So I would just, uh, are your wildflowers coming back on their own or you do intend to plant wildflower yeah, seed? They will. I mean, there... not like tons, but yes, verbena and some blue bonnets and they come back, but you can't yeah. even see them. I would, sometime in fall or early spring, I would shred it down, I would cut it down as low as possible, and other than, you know, the first things that come out, you're going to have lots of little green weeds show up. The only wildflower that's really is a problem is blue bonnets because they, you know, they actually start growing in the fall. Most other things like your larkspur, like your verbenas, all of that really doesn't start showing up until a little bit later in the season when you first start seeing the dandelions uh, sprout up, when you first start seeing the hen bit. Simply get out there with your vinegar and orange oil. Well, try to avoid your blue bonnets, but kill off in February, kill off, uh, or maybe January, kill off all that stuff that's trying to come out early, and most of the time, your wildflowers will be ahead of the summertime grasses. It's the wintertime grasses that get to be a real problem, and we just have to get rid of those uh, early on before the wildflowers start to sprout. Beyond that, if you want basically a pure stand of wildflower seeds, you just have to solarize it with some big pieces of black plastic or something like that and then follow that up with reseeding because there's just no effective spray and by the time you know that your wildflowers have gone to seed um, the other grasses are already up and growing going to seed themselves so um, I, I just would shred it real low in the fall I would use vinegar and orange oil on the first batch of cool season weeds that want to try to come up and I think you'll find that uh, your wildflowers will get ahead of the weeds Okay, so you think that vinegar and orange oil will work on, like, speargrass and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it will. Okay. Okay. But, um, okay. yeah, but get it early before your right. before your wildflowers right. really start to grow. January, get it while February. it's, right. yeah, right. yeah. Okay, first green. First green I see, go get it. Go get it because it's, uh, first green is not going to be what you want. Okay, okay. Thank you so much. Let's talk again early next spring, and we'll try to get the timing down a little bit better when we can see what the weather's going to do. Okay. Thank you. You're Bye-bye. sure welcome. Goodbye, friend. All right. Janet is up next. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, two quick questions. I had to have some foundation work done on my house this past uh-huh. week, and, of course, um, there's landscape shrubbery. Uh, where uh-huh. the fellows were working. And I know some of the roots had to be cut, you know, to do this work. Is right. there anything that I can do to help these these poor shrubs um, sit back <laughs> and not well, die? Yeah, um, how, how close to the foundation, how extensive is the damage that they did to the shrubbery? Um, the shrubs are approximately two and a half to three feet away uh-huh. from where they were where they were digging. 
Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I'm more concerned about soil compaction than I am about, you know, real damage to the shrubs because basically okay. they just pruned them. And if they did it, you know, the past couple of months, they probably pruned them at close to the right time of year. But the machinery they use and just simply their own heavy feet plodding back and forth on that ground, um, the compaction, I think, is worse than what they actually did as far as cutting the shrubs back. So I would probably, I'd spray the area down with Garrett juice. I would definitely fertilize with a good dry fertilizer, whether it's Nature's Creation or Medina or Maestro Grow. I'd use a good organic fertilizer. And I would perhaps do even a little bit more trimming just to even up You know, it's just like kind of getting a haircut on one side but not the other. You may need to go back and kind of balance some of the some of the cutting that they did on the shrubs. But I'm really not that concerned about you know the physical damage to the shrubs. Now, anything that's broken, go ahead and cut it all the way off. But let's work at loosening that soil up. Let's swallow it up with a good mulch over the root zone, not right up against the trunks of the plants. But uh, a good mulch is going to help increase the microbial life some uh, dry molasses is going to help or liquid molasses either one we just want to in effect get that soil back to where it's less compacted back to where we have more oxygen going into it and your plants are going to survive and do just fine okay uh, they, they didn't do much damage to the um the greenery on the shop uh-huh. yeah oh but just yeah, cutting a few roots uh, doesn't really hurt because is is your home on a slab or on pier and beam? Slab. Okay, so the roots don't go under the slab. The roots go up against, there's a wide spot called, or a deeper spot called a grade beam that is on the edge of your slab. And the roots couldn't, I mean, if they cut the roots six or eight inches away from the slab, they only cut off six inches of roots because the roots weren't going under the slab anyway. So I consider that pretty minor damage, and I wouldn't be overly concerned about it. Okay, okay. So one one more little question. I have um, a flame daisy, uh, no, a flame violet, and it really looks puny. Um, what can I do to help this little gal? I don't know a plant called flame violet. Describe it to me. Um, it's the the leaves are kind of arrow shaped, and they're very great variegated. Uh, uh, dark green, light green, and the dark green is on the veining. Okay. Um, and the the flower is just a very simple little flower. Uh, usually it's orange with a yellow center, but mine is pink with a yellow center. Um, I can't remember the um, the true yeah. name of it, but it, it begins with an E X. It begins with what now? An E X. E X. How about uh-huh. Ixora? I X O R A. Okay. Um, it's yeah. This you know in the cool weather, uh, they they are a tropical plant. They don't mm-hmm. really start growing until the weather gets warm. I give it you know some good fertilizer and. Um, once again, a little bit of green sand, a little bit of garret juice, things like that. And always watch the newest growth. That's what's going to tell you how good a shape the plant is in. My suspicion is just it looks the way it always does when the nights are cool. But a little fertilizer, good organic fertilizer is going to help it more than anything else. Let's talk in a month or so, and I'll bet you it looks a whole lot better.
Okay, thank you so much. All right, back to gardening, and uh, we'll finish up this hour with Robert and Greg, and Robert's up first. Good morning, Robert. Good Hi, Robert. Morning. Thank morning, you. sir. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Third generation. Thanks for calling. I appreciate that. I'm from Prospect Hill Central. Okay. I have five different types of trees in, in the yard. Okay. Um, magnolia, Chinese tallow, mountain laurel. Craig Myrtle, Mimosa. Okay. I'm trying to save money on, on the water because I noticed the water is outrageous just for the fees. Sure. Um, I want to maybe have some type of structure where if I just get a barrel, uh, a five-gallon buckets and put them by the trees mm-hmm. and just fill up the bucket, <laughs> and then I could do other things while I'm watering, filling oh, up sure. the buckets. Well, what you do, you take that, t- take that five-gallon bucket and just uh, drill two or three little eighth-inch diameter holes in the bottom and then turn on your hose at full speed, and you don't have to worry about the water running off too quickly because uh, it's going to be going out slowly enough through the holes in the bottom of the bucket that 100% of it will soak into the ground. And uh, it's sort of like a drip irrigation system, only better. So uh, it's a great way, especially on new trees. Now, uh, established trees have got their roots all over the place. You probably don't need to water more than once a month. So don't get carried away with thinking you have to water too often. But your idea of taking some buckets and putting some little tiny holes in the bottom is, is a great way to go. Okay. Now with the magnolia, 50-year-old tree, uh-huh. uh, every two weeks or once a month. Oh. Uh, once a month should be plenty uh, if you water thoroughly. And remember, with a magnolia, it likes a lot of mulch. And if you're able to mulch all of these trees, it's going to reduce the watering need on every tree, whether it's magnolia, crepe myrtle, tallow, whichever one. Mulch is always a good idea. But uh, if these are all established trees, thorough watering once a month should be plenty. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I went to your, I purchased some um, nematoids in November, sprayed it. Uh-huh. Uh, should I do another application? I if you feel like you need to, uh, this time of year you'd be controlling fleas and grub worms. Uh, if you haven't seen a lot of June bugs and if you don't have a flea issue, I'm not going to tell you that it's mandatory. But, um, I've seen June bugs and I have seen the fleas. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Get some more nematodes and put them out as soon as you can. And does it have to rain? Which is well, the soil needs to be moist. It doesn't need to be saturated, okay. but you need to remember that the nematodes move in a film of water. So just yes, just sir. moisten it like you're watering your grass. Put your nematodes out, and uh, you'll be in great shape. And I appreciate it, Robert. Let me get Greg in here before the end of the hour. And uh, good morning, Greg. Hey, good morning, Bob. Thanks for taking my call. About, thanks for calling. Thanks. About two minutes here. Okay, uh, tomato plants. Uh, Looking good, big and tall, getting bushy, and then the bottom of them, the leaves are turning yellow and wilty. Is that too much water? No, sir. That is a, well, it may be a result of uh, too much water, but it's a a fungal disease called early blight. Um, You need to either, you know, use... uh, a, a an organic fungicide. Um, I just soak some whole ground cornmeal in the water and use that liquid to spray. And when you water, try to apply the water directly to the soil because. And when I plant tomatoes, I always put out you know, a couple of handfuls of cornmeal around the base of the plant because this early black fungus resides in the soil. 
when we get a lot of watering from above, and I realize with rain you can't do anything about it, but it literally splashes the fungal spores up onto the leaves, and that's where this problem comes from. But uh, any good natural fungicide will get it under control. Next time around, put some whole ground cornmeal on the ground when you plant, and you'll probably never see the early blight. Is it too late to do that now? Um, it's too late to totally stop it. I don't think it's ever too late to do, but uh, I think you will reduce the problems, but I think you need to spray the lower foliage as well. Okay, okay. And then my second question was, yard, our yard, really hard. What, what do I need to put down on there to soften the soil? And I think you answered that earlier. Well, of course, always stay with organic fertilizers. Uh, molasses stimulates the microbial activity which softens the soil. It can either be dry molasses, which is easier to apply, or liquid molasses, which is cheaper at the rate of about two tablespoons per gallon. Uh, don't waste your money on gypsum. It doesn't work here. But a little compost will help. And, uh, of course, spraying with Garrett juice and products like Medina Plus that stimulate the microbes, those long-term are what are going to soften the soil more than anything else. But uh, organic fertilizers only. It's chemical fertilizers that make it hard to start with. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Back to gardening, but uh, don't dial right this second. This is our time to visit with the Dirt Doctor. We'll save about the last 30 minutes or so of the show for you. But uh, right now, it's my great pleasure to say good morning to Mr. Howard Garrett. How's the Dirt Doctor today? Well, I'm doing pretty uh, fine. I uh, finally figured out, how I think, how to use my new credit card. We got new credit cards in the mail without asking for them. The, the, the new feature, you know, where you're just supposed to tap it. Are y'all dealing with that and having any issues? We have not done that uh, here at the nursery. I No, I can't say that I have any experience with that. We still, you know, everything is, is chips now, but um, we we haven't, haven't gone with the TAP credit card yet. So uh, I'm afraid I will be as much in the dark and probably slower to learn how to use it than you are. Well, so. uh, the funny thing is you don't have a choice. It just comes to you in the mail all of a sudden. They'll, they send you out a uh, city, uh, ours is a MasterCard. They just send uh-huh. you a, a notice that it's coming, and then uh, lo and behold, you get it. And it has a different number, and, you, have, you know, Judy's been spending the last couple of days on it, and Doug had to at the office, too, you know, changing all the automatic payments and everything. But it, instead of doing the sliding it in the chip hole you're supposed to, it says to tap it well if you just tap it it doesn't work you got to kind of lay it down on the window well good you've got you've got some frustration ahead of you <laughs> well and and i guess we'll have to hear from our bank too because uh our you know our credit card machines and we have three of them at our three separate cash registers i don't think are equipped to scan whatever kind of technology it is on there. So uh, I appreciate the heads up. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, yeah, I guess, you know, we would always, uh, we could always just punch in the numbers manually, which is what we have to do if the chip goes bad or if the stripe goes bad. But uh, it's going to require a little bit of upgrading on electronics on our end as well. So, uh, uh, again, thanks for the heads up. I'll, I'll let you know. Oh, I'll let you know as soon as it descends upon us, but they haven't well, mentioned a word chip, of it to us yet. I think the chip will still work, but uh, okay. it's just, it's just you know, kind of a 
changing the numbers and everything, it's just kind of a strange kind of a frustration to throw on everybody right in the middle of everything else. Boy, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Are are your nurseries busy up there? I have to say, I don't want to, I hate to use the word complacent, but people are so tired of being cooped up at home, and it's not just us. I talk regularly to other people who believe in organics and things, and apparently every nursery in our area is just absolutely almost overwhelmed with people realizing that a nursery is a great place to go when you need to get out, and we just view it as such an opportunity to teach new people, and some of them are are people that are just finding us and are already gardeners, but so many of them are people that are really just wanting to get involved, and boy, talk about a fertile mind or a fertile ground to get them started on organics from day one. It, it sure is a lot of fun. Yeah, the few uh, nurseries I've been into have been, been snowed under, too. Same kind of uh, a thing. And the restaurants are starting to open up now. It was an interesting conversation with a couple of guys yesterday that have friends that are restaurant people that are saying, you know, how do you open at 25 Exactly. You know, how do you yep. buy a word? How, how do you do this, that, and the other thing? I'm going to try to get uh, Judy to go out and try out one of the restaurants around here just to you know be supportive and see what see how it works out they're having to wear masks and they're having to uh-huh. spread out the tables which some of them already had but they're everything's starting to open back up well it's yeah, it's been a while coming i i thought uh one of the restaurants that i and i've been getting two go from them but i was in there picking up my my two go lunch the other day and i said are y'all about to open up again and they said yeah and said look around and rather than trying to spread out the tables and have to figure out where to put everything they all the tables were in the same place but every other table or so had the chairs turned upside down sitting up on top of the table and he said we're just going to tell people you can sit at the tables where the chairs are on the floor and that spreads them out and the interesting thing too is uh at least from what i understand san antonio is doing is it's based on what the fire marshal says the maximum occupancy of your establishment is and at least a lot of the restaurants i know don't have that nearly that many tables so it's going to be interesting to to see exactly how much it spreads people out because i know one restaurant has uh you know like uh the the little fire marshal deal says 200 people but i don't think they have more than 50 chairs in the restaurant so they're already at 25 percent capacity so it's going to be interesting roberta and i always look for restaurants that have outdoor patios and things like that and that's that's easy to socially distance and Everything I read says that the that the virus is rarely spread through the consumption of food. That your stomach acids, uh, as long as you're not you know taking all the antacids, which I don't believe in anyway, but your stomach acid will take care of the virus. That the the 99% of the transmission is simply picking it up off of surfaces and then getting it in your eyes or in your nose or things like that. So uh, I'm not as worried about dining out, but I think we'll continue to look for patios. But uh, there's just so much interesting data, and I'm sure not going to second guess anybody but somebody sent me something real interesting looking at like 15 or 16 countries about half of whom had done nothing and the other half which basically shut down the country as the United States has done 
and the death rates were about the same both places and the rates of infection were about the same in both places so kind of have to scratch your heads and say i hope we're going to look back and learn from this but uh i don't i don't know you know, I don't know what the answer is, and I'm certainly not going to second-guess people, but I, I think there's a lot of evidence out there that, in some cases, we've been emphasizing the wrong things, I guess would be the right way to put it. Well, it's uh, opening back up. We'll see what happens. I hope uh, <laughs> hope everything goes well. Yeah, and, and as long as people spend all their free time in the garden, they won't have to worry about it too much. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Are y'all seeing anything unusual or different in the vegetable gardens? We've we've had so many beautifully cool mornings here. One of the most common questions we get in the nursery is, why are my tomatoes not setting fruit? Some of them are, but some of them aren't. And I know in my own garden, my cherries are starting to load up, but, boy, the big-fruited tomatoes just aren't setting any fruit, but because it's, you know, down in the 50s at night still. So are y'all seeing anything unusual or different? No, not really. Uh, things are growing very well. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of fruit uh, going on my tomatoes yet, but the plants are growing very uh, well. The asparagus yeah. production has been has been real good. The uh, garlic is getting ready to start harvesting. Uh huh. Uh, mine's that elephant garlic, and the big right. flower heads are starting to uh, crack open right now, so it won't be too <laughs> long before. The foliage start the oldest foliage starts to turn brown, and it's time to get the uh, get those big bulbs out of the ground. Well, and it's a double benefit there because the flowers are pretty on that elephant garlic, and then you get you know lots and lots of garlic, and it's it's a little milder flavor than some of the others. But I like that elephant garlic. I think it's a pretty plant in the garden and uh, great in the kitchen too. Yeah, and one of my uh, kind of ongoing exper- uh, experiment about when to plant is interesting those rounds that i think i told you about mm-hmm. planting real real late uh, just uh-huh. a couple of months ago um are growing and are as big above ground as the ones that were planted at the right time or had you know been left uh-huh. over in, in the ground i didn't even uh, plant so it, it's looking more and more like you can plant garlic anytime you feel like it it'll do fine <laughs> well, and it's something you can just not have too much of for culinary purposes. But also, I, I love garlic in the garden. As a matter of fact, I was visiting with a friend this week, and uh, they had some thrips on the roses. And I was telling them, you know, all you need is a little garlic spray on the foliage. Have you found anything better to use against thrips, or are you still recommended the garlic? No, that's that's the best probably because it's systemic, and it's really good on uh, other related kind of insects like the uh, the ones that do the little tunnels all in the mm-hmm. uh, in the leaves that's kind yeah. of hard to control because that garlic goes in the plant and just goes through the entire you know it's systemic just like a chemical does and um, uh-huh. not only gets rid of the pest but I think it's probably good for the health of the plant too. Oh, I totally agree. I always tell people to spray early in the day when the stomata are wide open because I think the plants take it up better in the morning, but. Uh, I, you know, everything from aphids to thrips to 
lots of other things. And, and of course, garlic, I think, is great as a foliar spray anyway because it supports the beneficial fungi. And while I don't know that it works against damaging fungi, more of the beneficial fungi you have out there, the less problem you're going to have, whether it's early blight or, or black spot or anything else. So, I, yeah, between, uh, gar- between garlic and dry molasses and apple cider vinegar, uh, it's just one of those uh, really, really wonderful tools we have for the garden. Well, I think that uh, garlic pepper tea is probably something that's underappreciated. Uh, you know, I've talked about it forever. I mean, it was something that I learned uh, to do somehow or another very early on in my organic uh, education. And the, I think the reason it works so well is, one, you get this repelling from the pepper, Mm-hmm. That is a little stronger than the repelling that the garlic, you know, provides. But the garlic is systemic and goes in and does other kinds of things, and it's a wonderful tool to repel insects rather than kill anything. You know, it doesn't sure. kill the pest. It it just functions as a as a repellent, and thus it doesn't kill any of your beneficials, which means beneficial microorganisms too. But, you know, we still today, as you know, don't have a commercial <laughs> garlic pepper tea on the market. <laughs> and I don't know still, why that, that is. I don't know. Yeah. You know the Medina, the, no, not Medina, but uh, Maestro Grow had one for right. a while. And well, I don't know, I don't know the whole story exactly, but apparently somebody complained about it. One of the university types complained about it, and forced the state to go in and do a you know a red tag and, and <sighs> pull it. And, yeah. and Chris just threw up the towel and said, "Heck with it! I'm not going to deal with it anymore." And yeah. That, in fact, at that time, that was the only one that I know about on the market. Yep. Yep. I. I yeah, and and there's still, thank goodness, there's still some good liquid garlic out there that's sold under names like mosquito barrier or garlic barrier, but in both cases, it's got a very high concentration. So then all you have to do is figure out how to make the pepper part of your tea, and uh, I, you know, so many so many peppers grow so well. The uh, the little chili pekins, of course, and chili patines, just they just grow wild all around my landscape and out under the trees and everywhere else. And you can always go just, you know, kind of pick a double handful of those and throw them in the blender, and they're hot enough to do well. But uh, even beyond that, you know, the serranos or I, I'm not into super, super hot, but they we've got things now like the basket of fire and the ghost peppers and the old, uh, oh, what is the more common one that's uh, just habaneros. <laughs> habaneros. That's what I was trying to think of. Uh, I guess it's not too much trouble to make your own. Be be a lot easier if we could get one on the market, but we'll have to keep, keep fussing. And Chris, he's sure doing a good job with fertilizer. They're actually making a product for us that's uh, an improved form of the Rose Glow. But I'll talk to Stuart, too, see if he's uh, see if we can push him in the right direction. Well, they could do it really easily, but I don't know. I guess it's because it's a pesticide, and they get into that issue of, you know, what is uh, exempt <laughs> and what you have to do all the uh, testing on and everything. But We've given the formula on how to make it on birddoctor.com forever. It's oh yeah. You just use two hot peppers and two two um, uh, 
balls cloves of garlic. garlic in yeah. a blender and add enough water to it to make a gallon, and that's your that's your concentrate. So, so why uh, we can't get a, a commercial one? I have no idea. <laughs> I guess we need to come up with a different use for it, and not even not even mention the insect controlling qualities and we need to call it a tonic of some sort and uh, I always laugh when they wouldn't let Malcolm Beck call his product firing control but they'd let him call it anti-fuego I just that that just to me epitomized the stupidity of what a lot of these uh, a lot of these regulations are but you know with there's there's bound to be and thank goodness it's one of them that's easy to make but I sure would love to see us get it back on the market because it just is so useful just so useful yeah, I think that there's a lot of people that are avoiding using it and uh, you know not getting the uh, the benefits from it. It's just such an easy way to take care of some of the early, especially the early in the season pests and the little irritating kind of things without pulling out something that uh, kills beneficials. And I'm talking about yep. you know even the organic stuff. If you mm-hmm. pull out orange oil or one of the other organic. Uh, pesticides, you know, you're going to be killing beneficials. And the garlic pepper tea doesn't do that. That's why I like it. Well, and plus, it it is repellent to squirrels. If it has to be reapplied, but it's even repellent to deer. All the mammals don't like anything that has hot pepper, and it doesn't stop the birds. But uh, it's it's about as good as we've got to keep uh, keep the rabbits and the squirrels and things like that away as well. So it's really multifunctional. No question about it. So wait, the listeners told me uh, some years ago that they had used a recommendation on uh, raccoons getting in the trash. Huh. And uh-huh. that it one spray and just totally eliminated <laughs> the problem. I don't think other animals are quite as sensitive to it, but for, for some reason the, uh, the raccoons really, really don't like garlic pepper tea or, or just a, a hot pepper uh, tea spray. And another thing about the pepper part of it is you can use two habaneros or two of the, any of those really hot things and it gives you all the heat that you need. You really don't need to put the whole <laughs> Well, just uh, if you're sensitive to such things, just remember to wear, you know, wear your gloves and as you've oh, yeah. taught us how Stanley Marcus taught you, don't touch your face because Oh, man, I know people that go out and just pick in the garden and then get careless about rubbing their eyes or other sensitive tissues, and you'll pay for it. You'll only make that mistake one time because it, it can cause you some pain. There's no question about it. I've got a little habanero plant growing uh, at the uh, office. almost always do, uh, but like you say, Judy's tried to cut them up before and she can't even touch them much less eat them but the, the flavor if you cut them back on uh, cut back the volume that you have habanero uh-huh. got one of the best pepper flavors of any oh yeah you know it would be i just don't do that much grilling but it would be fun to try smoking some of those and see how they do my friend cappy lawton and you've dined at his restaurants with us uh, like a pond on maine and some of the others but cappy takes the little uh chili patines and he slices them in half and roasts them and he uses that as a seasoning as a flavoring in lots of different dishes and he's he's quite a chef and uh and he says smoking somehow takes a little of the heat away and adds substantially to the flavor so uh you might try that on some of your habaneros sometime and see how that works yeah i've got a jar full of uh, smoke roasted actually uh 
uh, chili beans myself, and I put three of them. I learned the hard way that you didn't need very many of them in my tea that I uh, do every. It gives yeah. just enough of a kick to be really a, a nice flavor uh, added to it. But roasting them or smoking them, either one, probably uh, provides the same benefit to it. Uh-huh. Very good. Oh, you're making me hungry just thinking about all these things. Uh, one other thing that I learned about that you're going to have to look around and see if you can find up there, or I may just get some of it here and send you, but I just learned from my friend that has the uh, really good, uh, it's called Rhonda's Nature's Way, and I hate to call them a health food store because they are so much more, but they are getting a product, and I think it's coming out of uh, Germany, that is uh, comfrey. And they're calling it trauma comfrey, and they fortified it. They put a couple more things in there, alentwine or however you pronounce it, choline and uh, a rosmarinic acid. And all the research they're finding that, boy, as something to use against everything from insect bites to bruising, that uh, this place is being very, this product is being super widely accepted. And the only name I've got for, for it is trauma comfrey, but I've got to get with Rhonda this week and learn a little bit more about it but i think that's going to be a great thing to add to anybody's medicine cabinet it's basically just taking some of the active things out of comfrey putting it in a landland base or a similar base and uh, i know dr kirby's done that in the clinic uh for various problems uh to help out his animals with skin issues and things like that and we've of course made kind of a tea out of it back when roberta had some golden retrievers who were very very sensitive skinned and she would make a tea that would actually spray on the skin and it calm down hot spots and other things but uh, i'm just glad to see a new comfrey product on the market because for topical application i just think it's one of the just as close to a miracle plant as we have as well it sounds good is it commercially available now this apparently so again she just sent me an email uh, you know about some other things and this was included and i read that at nine o'clock last night and i wasn't about to wake her up and say tell me more but uh, uh i will definitely get with her this week and see what more i can learn about it and uh if i can i'll uh, i'll get i don't know whether it's in a like a little salve in a jar or a tube or whatever but uh first time i'm i'm over by one of her stores i'll pick up some of it and uh, drop a little bit of it in the mail to you as well it sounds good. You know, I, I have little pre-cancerous things pop up on my skin occasionally, not very often, and I use the juice out of figs. The only reason that we have fig trees around at all is to have have that. We don't eat <laughs> figs, and the, and the squirrels and the dogs do eat the figs. It's like a mess, but uh, this product sounds like it might be even better way to go. I did not realize that uh, that the fig juice was, was that good on the skin. I'll have to try that as well because, you know, yeah, my Malcolm, dermatologist, yeah, go ahead. Malcolm ran into that years ago. He, you know, used to go in and have them burned off and oh, yeah. I don't know how he thought about doing it, but he put, them, put some, you know, you break the fig off and that milk comes right out of the stem right, immediately. Right. You need to put that on there and I've done it uh, quite a few times. It burns, uh, uh-huh. but it will shut down the growth of some of those little, uh, skin issues it doesn't replace going to the doctor if you've got sure you know skin cancer or something but the those little spots like that it really helps and i tell people also and i've learned this myself the this uh, 
the dark age spots. Uh huh. Yeah. You were talking about peroxide. peroxide. Two for those. Peroxide will do it too. Yeah. And uh, but you can do a combination of the two if if one of the spots starts to really get bad. But the hydrogen peroxide will knock out just the dark uh, spotting. But the the white sap out of the fig will do that as well. Yeah, it's better to to do just on the uh, any that start to get bad because it's uh-huh. kind of sticky on your uh, skin. Oh yeah, well, it's latex. You know, it's it's the rubber yeah. family. Yeah, ficus. But uh, well, that's interesting because yeah, I, what my dermatologist calls them keratoses or singular keratosis and. Uh, um, I, I guess any of us that have spent a lot of time out in the sun, as uh, you have, and uh, both in your Marine Corps service and the golf course, and me in the garden and the fishing hole and everything else, uh, that's just something good to remember. Because uh, if you can, if you can take care of them before they before they get to be too big, uh, it, it certainly saves a lot of liquid nitrogen when you go see the dermatologist. Yeah, yeah. Well, what else is going on? Uh, anything special happening uh, around your garden? Or it? Uh, I've got some. I need to send you some more pictures. We're getting some new varieties of uh, vinca, and and my gosh, some of the colors, some of the new things are two toned. And I don't know if we got you any of that little miniature vinca. The series they call Soiree, S O I R E E. But uh, there's a new color in that, and those are also just one of the cutest little plants to recommend for somebody that wants a uh, a tabletop plant that's just going to be a solid mass of flowers all summer. I'm just more and more impressed with uh, vinca all the time, especially since they seem to have bred a lot of the phytophthora issues out of it. Uh, Gosh, there's some pretty colors out there. Yeah, I think I tried one of those a year or two back, and I haven't. They're not available here in Dallas too much. Huh. I need to try to figure out how to get some of those. Um, there's bound to be some nurseries around here that that have them. I'll, I'll call around to some of the ones I don't normally go to. Try to well, ask the the whole series of, of them is called Soiree, I guess, which is French, but it's S O I R E E, and that's what they want to ask for. And some people look at them and they just say, "Oh, well, it's just so much smaller flower than the other." Vincas, but I remember at one of the trade shows, uh, one of the growers actually gave Roberta a little pot of it uh, three years ago, I guess when it first came out. She put it in a little, about a seven inch uh, terracotta bowl, and that thing just covered the whole bowl, and it must have had 50 to 75 flowers open on it on any given day, practically all summer long. So uh, encourage your nurseries up there. I think it's something to do very well with. Okay. Will do. Well, very good. Um, one last question, if we can take just a minute or two. What do you tell people on getting rid of really tough grasses like Bermuda and some of the others where they're wanting to establish a new garden or something else? And all the things that we love, whether it's the weed crush or the orange oil and vinegar, it just takes multiple, multiple applications. Do you have... Uh, I. I you know, as you hear me, I frequently tell people just to solarize or even I hate weed block, but sometimes I'll put that down for, for a brief period to kill it out. But what do you tell people when they need to get rid of Bermuda or something like that? Well, I think uh, on the edges, putting down the plastic is as good a thing as you can do. It's, I, I think we agree that's one of the few places that it's appropriate to be used. Uh, one thing that I did stumble into years ago, and the other thing I tell people that's really the best way to go if you've got a pretty good size area to remove is hire 
a contractor or a grocery <laughs> to come in and use a sod cutter and cut it out one and a half inches deep because that takes it, even if it's Bermuda, a lot of people think that Bermuda comes back from the roots, but it does right. not. It only can come back from the stolons, which are right up there in the top of the soil. So that's the best way to go. But uh, on a project where we did a big experiment years ago, we used uh, vinegar and together, with, and it kind of goes along with what you and your earlier caller were talking about, we used vinegar and scythe together. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it killed Bermuda and nutgrass and everything. It was a, a pretty interesting combination of, of things that for some reason killed out all the tough stuff totally with one spray. So that that's another just a possibility. It's kind of a trouble to go to, you know, mix it yeah. and all that. Plus the fact we lucked out on what the formula was. I'm going to talk to some of the people like the Pure Grow people about coming up with a version of that. In fact, they're working on it right now, trying to come up with an organic uh, herbicide that will kill woody plants, which would be uh-huh. really tougher to do. Oh, man, but little hackberries and things like that. Send me your contact because I'm having trouble finding any reasonable place, and I think I may just end up going directly to them to get their products on our shelves, which I really would like to do. So I know you talk to them periodically. Tell them to give me a call or send me an email or whatever because I really want to get started with them, even if we just direct ship a few cases at a time down here. Yeah, that, that's something I'd uh, recommend uh, for sure. I'll, I'll have Danny get get uh, get in touch with you. That'll be just perfect. Well, why don't we uh, do this again next week? <laughs> we'll, we will look forward to it, Howard, and uh, it'd be interesting to see. We'll see how much the how much the state opens up between now and then, and. Uh, as always, uh, you know, just appreciate so much everything you do and everything you do on Dirt Doctor. I, I always thank you, but tell Doug thanks, too, because I know he he makes a good behind-the-scenes contribution as well. But uh, um, we, just, we just appreciate you, and it's so nice to have a place we can send people on the Internet because everybody seems to want to go to the Internet, and they go to all the wrong places. So uh, just thank you for having DirtDoctor.com out there for us. Well, everybody get out and get some exercise, and when you're walking, uh, like Judy always uh, rags on me, get those shoulders back and get that head back and that face back, that chest and everything inside that chest more healthy. I'll see everybody next week. We look forward to it, Howard. Thanks so much, and uh, hi to the dogs as well. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Mike and Ann and Chad and Gloria, and Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. At least you didn't have any more of that 100-degree weather this week, I trust. Tell me. Tell me about it. <laughs> not only that, i uh, calling to give you an update on my uh, ongoing saga here with my tomato plants slash uh, cucumber plants slash uh, jalapeno. You know. uh, the, the unknown garden visitor. Yeah, you know, what it, you know what it turned out to be? What did it turn out to be? Roma tomatoes. Really? Yes. <laughs> the good old paste tomato. That's interesting. That's I, interesting. Know, like I said, I just grind everything up, throw it out there, and I never know what's going to come up. And you know, was, <laughs> I've never seen a Roma, Roma tomato plant before, and you know, just its shape threw me off. 
Yeah, the leaves are a little bit. It's kind of like brandywine. They call that a potato leaf tomato. And uh, the leaf doesn't really look like at all like uh, other tomatoes. I don't, I've grown romas. I don't have any in the ground right now. But I had not realized that the leaf was that different on a roma. But uh, it's, as you well know, it's a great paste tomato. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll... Uh, Maybe you'll have a whole new hybrid because, uh, like you said, this is just uh, a seedling that came up from a combination of different things. So uh, I'll be interested to hear how it grows and produces for you. Yeah, uh, I'll keep you posted, but I, I just had to tell you. I knew you would get a laugh out of it. <laughs> I'm just surprised that you didn't pick up on it sooner, but I can see why you did, Mike. But uh, at least that's one mystery solved. Uh, well, have a great weekend, and I'm glad to hear your business is thriving, brother. Well, it's uh, it's uh, you know, it's a lot of work, but golly, it's just fun making people happy. You know, people cannot walk in with and look at a place full of flowers without smiling. I don't care how down in the dumps you are or how many other things are going on. Uh, we've got a little sign, and I don't know where Roberta found it or one of the girls found it, but it's uh, it looks almost like a Charlie Brown character. But he says the answer is plants. Don't care what the question is. <laughs> but <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that hey you get out and have a good weekend we'll talk again mike all right thank you bye thank you bye all right ann is up next good morning ann hi bob it's nice to talk to you yeah it's Um, good to talk to you you, thank you you often refer to a a, i think it's a hardware store around bernie um last saturday or sunday you recommended it to a lady and the owner spoke with you this last week and, and right. told you that she had actually shown them. What is the name of that place? Well, it's actually up in Comfort. Um, I oh, loved, okay. we used to have a wonderful uh, hardware lumberyard place in Bernie called Bergman's, but uh, they retired. But um, up in Comfort, uh, Steve Bonert is uh, B-O-H-N-E-R-T. And uh, they they have even more than Bergman's did. I mean, you I'd spend an hour in that place wandering around finding different things. Plus, they've got a great selection of lumber, great selection of heavy-duty metal. I just can't stand places like Home Depot that put out this little flimsy stuff that's going to break and rust out. So anyway, they're, uh, if I'm headed north, I take the uh, first Comfort eight exit, which is the 87 exit, and just follow it around there for half a mile or so, and boners will be on your left hand side and uh, awfully nice people and a tremendous selection of product um 87 off of i-10 yeah it's just if i'm going out i-10 the first comfort exit i believe it says 87 you don't want to get up there to where you branch off to go to fredericksburg but you uh you exit you kind of go to the left and uh Anyway, just follow follow the signs. It will point you toward Fredericksburg. It's uh, on the far east edge of Comfort, right there on the main drag. It's easy to get by it. I think they're, I can't remember if it's Ace or True Value. They've, uh, they've branched out a bit so that because supplies in the hardware business uh, uh, have are a little hard to get, and Steve just wanted uh, to be able to keep more product on a shelf all the time. But anyway, just Google Bonert, B-O-E-H-N-E-R. RT, Bonert, Lumber, and Hardware, and uh, it's real easy to find and real nice people to do business with. Can, can you run through the spelling one more time, please? Sorry. B as in boy, or as in mm-hmm. Bob, I guess I should say. B-O-E as in Edward, H as in Henry, B-O-E-H, N as in Nancy, E-R-T. Perfect. 
I never would have been able to spell that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's right. You know, I, I, that. <laughs> I I ought to pull out. I've got one of their cards somewhere and be sure that's right. But uh, you get close to it, and it'll it'll bring it up for you. Yes. Thank you so very much, always. Oh, what a beautiful morning it is. I'm sitting here looking out the window and uh, watching them open and unpack some of those 130 cases that just came off that uh, California truck. It's it's just going to be a beautiful weekend. I sure hope you're planning to get outside and uh, visit a good nursery. Fannix is reopened. I know Rainbow's going strong. We here at Shades of Green, I don't think I ever remember seeing more different kinds of color in here. And uh, hope you will spend some time outside and working in the garden this weekend. We're going to finish up phone calls with Chad. Chad and Gloria, and Chad is up first. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Bob. How you doing, sir? Uh, just a beautiful morning and uh, looking forward to a great day. Yes, sir. Hey, so I bought my house about two years ago, so newer home. Congratulations. Two, uh, Monterey Oaks in the front yard that I grew it eventually, but you know, a lot of these newer houses are just plain looking up front, so I was planning on doing one of those uh, wire trellises that you, you put in the brick, and I wanted to okay. do uh, a climbing rose and possibly a honeysuckle or confederate jasmine. Do you have a recommendation on type of climbing rose, uh, something that, you know, kind of fill in with some green, and, and if the jasmine or honeysuckle be good with it? What direction does your home face? Which side of the home is this going to be on? It's going to be, it's going to be, um, I'll probably get at least half day to three quarter day sun. Uh, okay. It, it should get good, good exposure. Okay, because you don't want to plant a rose unless it gets blazing sun for most of the day. Um, yeah. And and the other problem with putting a rose up real close to the home is that it, it limits the air circulation and makes it more susceptible to things like powdery mildew and black spots. So, if I was going to plant a rose, I would you do it on you know a cage or a freestanding trellis or something out away from the wall. I think a vine would be a, a much more appropriate choice. And then you know it's just a question of of there's always some give and take there confederate or star jasmine same plant is absolutely beautiful for a month or six weeks in the spring and then it's a nice evergreen vine the rest of the time there is another good evergreen vine called tangerine beauty cross vine which again heavy flowering in the spring and then you know occasional flowers through the summer months and these are both evergreen vines but there are some other plants like the one they call queen's crown that make 10 times as many flowers but then they go away completely in the winter and then they regrow very quickly the next spring same thing is true of this plant called rangoon creeper so you're going to have to just get out and look and think and probably consult other family members um, as to whether you want something evergreen with a more limited blooming period or whether you would like something that might freeze back but would give you more flowers over a longer period of time. But, uh, you know, by all means, it's it's one of the great ways to add color and interest to your home. And, uh, of course, go ahead. Also, yeah, that, that sounds good. I mean, I, I could do a freestanding trellis. I was just wanting to give some of that that wall a little more depth of the feel or color, and I could I could do the trellis off the wall with the uh, the roses. I was just trying, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. That big, it's a two story home, so it's a big front brick wall, you know. Yeah, uh, and if you. It 
if you go with a climbing rose, get one of the ones that reblooms um, on both old growth and new growth. Mr. Lincoln was a, is a big old red rose. It was one of the first to do that. Or else just go with a tall, statured rose. There's a beautiful pink rose called Belinda's Dream. It's not truly a climber, but it'll get six feet tall, and it'll be absolutely... Before. Crimson... Crimson... Uh, uh, there's Crimson Crimson Glory is uh, one of the old red climbers. And, yeah, it's an old-timer, but it's a good one as well. Also, consider, you know, planting some perennial flowers out in front of there. If you want something that's really going to set your home apart, um, there's some new compact Esperanzas that bloom all summer. Uh, there's Pride of Barbados, makes a big, gorgeous, colorful shrub. Then you've got about a 100 different varieties of salvia. You've got different uh, cigar plants. You've got uh, plumbago. You've got shrimp plant. I mean, they're... The choices are just almost unlimited. There's a beautiful yellow flowering shrub called Thryallis that blooms almost all summer long. So lots of choices out there. Don't settle for dull and boring. Settle for something that's going to yeah give you lots and lots of color. Roses are pretty, but... Um, not necessarily the maximum bang for the buck. Uh, put put yeah. one rose there if you like roses, but there are lots of other things you can put with them that are going to be less trouble and more color. I guess I was looking more of uh, the fragrance aspect, too. That's why I like the honey sauce. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. I'll let the other young lady get it behind me, but you have a great weekend, sir. Yeah, I'd stay away from honeysuckle, though. That's uh, That brings its own set of problems. Maybe we can talk about that tomorrow or next Absolutely. week, Chad, but thank you. Well, let's talk to Gloria to finish up the show. Good morning, Gloria. Good morning, Bob. I have. Uh, I would like to get a recommendation f- uh, from you for uh, crepe myrtle. I'm looking okay. for something a little specific, something not too, because I already have real tall crepe myrtles. I'm looking for something that's not over five feet, and I okay. would like to have something that has a deep color. I had seen somewhere, and I wrote it down uh, some time ago. It was called Midnight Magic, but I don't know whether that's good for this area it's it's one of the it's one of the dark leafed varieties i tell you if i were going to plant one crepe myrtle that was only going to grow four feet tall it's got a real strange name but i want you to look it up it's called pokomoki p-o-k-o-m-o-k-e it's a real rich reddish pink color, nice foliage, mildew resistant, and only grows about four feet tall. But check out Poco Moki, and I bet you it'll be something that would please you very much. Okay, and then I need a recommendation for a dwarf one, also in a deep color. Um, golly, there there are several of the true dwarfs. Um, I want to say there's one called New Orleans that I believe is uh, is going to be a really deep color, and okay. uh, uh, I think that's one of the ones I would look for that it'll be. And we're talking here one that's not going to get over about two feet tall. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, I will try to check that out over the over the next 24 hours. I'll try to tell you if there are any others I would recommend, but that seems like one of the better ones that I've grown before. But uh, uh, New Orleans would be good. But do check out Pokemoki for your middle size, and I think you'll be very pleased with it. Okay, and one last thing. Where could I find them? Do you all have them, or is there a place where I could go and look for one? 
If you want to see the biggest selection, you probably want to go to Fanix. It's a little early in the season, but Fanix usually gets about a hundred different varieties. We carry some nice ones here, but I don't think anybody carries more different kinds of crepe myrtles than Fanix. So uh, probably need to give it about a month till more of them come into bloom, and then uh, go over and see Mark or Mike, and you'll you'll have the biggest selection anywhere around. Gloria, I appreciate it. Got to let you go because I'm out of time here.